Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, September the 15th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. With me today are Pat Leahy and Jack Horgan-Jones from our political team. And for the last few days, they have largely been doing a lot of thinking, or rather they've been observing a lot of performative thinking as the respective parties gather at locations around the country for their annual September think-ins. Pat, if I could go to you first on this, I wonder who coined that horrible phrase, thinking, in the first place? And what goes on at these things? An awful lot of thinking, Hugh. That'd be about it. Occasionally some drinking. All the glory days of the thinking as drinking kind of ended with, uh, uh, listeners might recall, the somewhat unfortunate appearance of Brian Cowan in September 2010 in the Ordelon Hotel in Galway, where he appeared to be suffering from the after effects of uh, of the night before an event, which uh, in the spirit of, uh, of journalistic endeavour, I witnessed uh, firsthand myself. Um, essentially, the thinkings date from the early 2000s. I think Fianna Fáil was the first to do them. They did it as a sort of a rallying of the troops after the summer recess an attempt to regain the political agenda before the dull term, kind of half uh, half media management, half um, morale-boosting social event, and half, and I know that's one and a half times, uh, that, that's a, a total of three halves, but, uh, but half um, are, are, are part, uh, sort of attempt to set the, uh, the political agenda for the forthcoming uh, political term. So just to set that in context for those of us who are maybe a bit outside the political bubble, I mean, so they emerged around the same time as some, I'm sure some listeners have had experience of the horror that is the uh, company away day, where one is encouraged to look at flip charts and discuss targets for the year ahead and and even, God forbid, to bond with people who you've been trying to avoid for the previous year. Is it sort of a version of that or is that the thinking behind it? It's a version of that. But with the other elements um, that are referred to earlier, and at least uh, uh, you know, perhaps one of the most important parts of that is a, a media event. So the media are there, and what I let's go back to one one of the first ones I um, attended back, which was in Inchidani in West Cork, was the Fianna Fáil one, and it was used by Bertie Ahern to signal the end of the McCreevy era in, uh, uh, in Fianna Fáil, the accession of Brian Cowan to, uh, to the Department of Finance, an end to the tightness of the McCreevy budgets of previous years, and to communicate the fact that Fianna Fáil in government at that stage understood the need to be more caring use uh, the term with uh, with the air the air quotes that you would expect and that was uh, i mean it was successful as a projection of that political message and typically the parties will seek to pro- 
you know, to to project one or two political messages uh, from them. Uh, at, at least that's what happens when they're working well. Many of them take place with no clearly thought out uh, agenda for it. And I think at this stage, they've become kind of a fixture on the political calendar that is in some parts at least divorced from their original uh, divorced from from their original purpose. And many of the parties get little out of them other than two days of uncomfortable questions uh, by the uh, by the media. And there are often some kind of big set piece public interviews with party leaders, which dominate the news agenda, I suppose, for a few hours at least. And Jack Fianna Fáil's one was late last week. Fine Gael and Sinn Féin had theirs. All the parties had theirs. But we're going to concentrate largely on the on the three of those. And maybe Fine Gael first, because perhaps it had the most immediate job of work to do in the aftermath of this never-ending sapone Coveney controversy. Yes, and, and to bring it rather nicely full circle... Um, it was, of course, Simon Coveney who pointed out that Brian Cowan, after the uh, Fianna Fáil thinking all those years ago, was a little bit worse for wear in a tweet that echoed down the ages. And, and this time it was Simon Coveney who was having to effectively uh, have a come to Jesus moment with the, the wider Fianna Gael parliamentary party and uh, apologise for having sullied his bib so totally over the over the summer period. And in a in a way which sucked in uh, the entire leadership, really, of Fine Gael, um, Pascal Donoghue and others, and uh, dominated the news agenda, and and he did so up to a point. There was there was a a fairly studied and um, fulsome uh, act of contrition uh, on a Tuesday when I was there. Uh, Simon Coveney, Leo Varadkar, uh, Jennifer Carl McNeil, and um, Richard Bruton at the rooftop of the Trimcastle Hotel, Simon Coveney uh, using what I thought were some pointed phrases about his own kind of personal level of embarrassment, um, ad- admitting that the whole thing had been a fiasco and owning up to the fact that it was on him that this had been an August story, the fabled and feared August story that takes root because nothing else is really happening, but that in failing to address that August story and recognise the da- the danger inherent in that August story, it had become a September story and that it was ultimately resulting in uh, the fact that the resumption of the Dáil term will be dominated for the first news cycle and probably the second as well by a vote of no confidence in the deputy leader, Fine Gael, which is a, a position that he certainly doesn't want to be in. You could see that he was very uncomfortable in uh, just before the doorstep that happened yesterday, he was, uh, you know, adjusting the glasses a lot, fiddling with the wedding ring. There was lots of tensed, tensed hands. You know, you, you can tell that he's not, he's not enjoying himself. Um, and and I think that this kind of his discomfort has spread through the party, and it's not just amongst the other people who were kind of tainted by the the controversy that emerged over the summer, but the whole Fine Gael party is a little ill at ease and that sense of being ill at ease permeated at the Drimcastle Hotel over the last couple of days. They kind of hermetically sealed themselves off to a greater or lesser extent. There was not a huge amount of fraternising with journalists and um, rest assured, this is not just because I'm so profoundly unlikable. Other journalists have have, have reported this as well. Um, they were kind of afraid to be seen talking one-on-one. They preferred, preferred to move in groups. They ate their dinner upstairs. Um, only a few of them, apparently, I can't testify to this, but the gossip reliably informs me that only a few of them repaired to the pub across the road with the hacks on Monday night, which is a, a story tradition of the thinking. Um, and generally, there was a sense that, you know, the whole thing was tightly controlled and it was about 
in a in a very controlled manner getting the message back um owning the narrative a little bit more and if that meant kind of stamping down on things um to take a bit of the the top spin off all the um events that Finnegale has had to deal with over the summer then then so be it um but there are wider malaises at play in Finnegale that won't be satisfied just by keeping the manners on the on the great homage at the at the thinking you know it's 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 also uh, about the fact that people are wondering how the leadership got sucked into this and what the kind of vision for the future of the party and the vision for the next phase of government, the next stage of government is amongst people like Leo Varadkar and Simon Coveney. So while I think that the initial the initial kind of exercise will be successful, they will kind of bind together, they 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 kept their manners over uh, the thinking and they'll rally around Simon Coveney, even if they lose perhaps a Fianna Fáil overboard arising from the vote. Um, I think there are bigger issues that won't be solved just by those one or two uh those one or two engagements with each other and with the opposition that, that we're facing into over the next couple of days. So Pat, listening to Jack there, there's people are wondering, people are worrying. No suggestion is there really of overt harsh words or recriminations behind those closed doors which he's talking about. You know, I mean, surely some form of slightly more open albeit behind closed doors, debate is needed to address what those problems are because they're still very nebulous and they're inchoate. They're about having been in power too long, becoming detached from political realities, getting sloppy, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, but if you talk privately to Fine Gael TDs, this is, what they, uh, this is what they say to you. They don't evince a great difficulty with the direction of government in policy terms. But what they zero in on is the mistakes and gaffes of uh, of their leaders. I mean, uh, Jack referred earlier to people apologising. I mean, the, the, the thinking, the Fine Gael thinking opened with apologies from the Taoiseach, uh, from Simon Coveney and from Pascal Donoghue. I'm not entirely sure what Pascal Donoghue was apologising uh, for, but perhaps he felt that uh, if the other two lads were apologising that he had better get in on the act uh, as well. But their apology is not about the policy uh, direction of the government. Um, it's, it's about their own, uh, their own missteps. And that is the source of, uh, of Fine Gael angst at the moment. There is a deeper angst as well, though, in Fine Gael, which is largely unspoken or only spoken of in very private conversations, often late at night. And, and that is a worry about the leadership of the party, the Varadkar project of selling him to the country as, uh, you know, as a, a new young leader for uh, a young country, as a Fine Gael leader who could reach those parts of the electorate, particularly among, you know, new young urban vo- liberal voters um, that might previously uh, have been off limits to the party, that Varadkar was somebody who could reach them. And people look at the general election campaign last year, for which there hasn't really been any public and not much of a private reckoning in, uh, in Fine Gael in the way that we've seen in Fianna Fáil at the moment. And they also look at the Dublin Bay South by-election that t- took place at the start of the summer. And they wonder, where is the Varadkar effect? And they also wonder... If it hasn't worked once, can it possibly work a second time? That having been said, there is no leadership 
unrest in Fine Gael or no unrest over the leadership in Fine Gael in the way that we've seen so publicly uh, in, uh, in Fianna Fáil. But there is that issue bubbling beneath uh, the surface. So when Pat talks there, Jack, about these things bubbling under but not bubbling up to the surface, um, is that partly due to the fact that the current party policy of Fine Gael as articulated this week both by Leo Varadkar and Pascal Donoghue is um, a plan to tax less and spend more, which must make life a little easier for your average backbencher. Yes, I think the fact that um, there's no immediate rush to uh, to balance the um, the state's balance sheet out, you know, so there's no kind of reflexive uh, move towards anything that might resemble austerity politics, although I do suspect that any cutback uh, will be labelled as such by the opposition in the Dáil this week when we resume. And, and, and you know, it's it's kind of speaks to the the wider problem that you know the problems that they're facing are of their own contrivance rather than visited on them externally so who do you blame uh for all these issues you can only turn in and and blame yourself um and i think that that is part of what pat was getting at that like there's there there there's something inner there's a, there's an inner kind of uh concern uh, eating away at Fine Gael and and you know the fact that they can't there's no there's no bogeyman effectively for them to um to point the finger at that won't stop them returning to uh, the punch and Judy politics um that we all know and love so much and and I think there was a good example of that during the doorstep yesterday when asked a fairly innocuous question I think about. I think it was about the building trade, you know, the fact that the building trade is facing really high costs at the moment. Varadkar said, oh yeah, you know, that's that's terrible. And then proceeded to just go for this, like, all guns blazing attack on Sinn Féin. And, you know, he said their policies are scary, they're anti-jobs, they're anti-business. And it was just like this greatest hits assault on, on, on Sinn Féin. And I think that that's a space that they're innately comfortable in. I think that's a space that they're going to try and manoeuvre themselves into and return to this kind of idea that there's this binary choice between Fine Gael and Sinn Féin. I do think that there's there's a misconception at the heart of that, though. Um, and I think that if Fine Gael are telling themselves that, you know, they can get out of this rut just by beating up on the shinners and telling the electorate that it's A or B, I think that kind of that miscalculates exactly how the electorate is going to divvy up next time out. Because I think there's a bunch of people who are going to vote Sinn Féin or the hard left that are never going to vote Fine Gael. And it's grand for Fine Gael to define themselves to their own base in contrast to that group of voters. But what they also have to worry about is attracting floating voters from the other parties, floating voters who may be traditionally Fianna Fáil, but also how to how to appeal to uh, the the kind of the the, the centre left rough grouping around Labour and uh, the Sock Dems and the Greens because I think those votes are mobile and I think the beating up on the Shinners won't do that. So there's there, there, there's bigger strategic questions other than just the kind of tactical comfort of retreating to beating up on the Shinners. And we'll come to Sinn Fein themselves in a moment, Pat. But I I I suppose that. If Fine Gael wanted to disprove the accusation that they're out of touch and that they're posh elitists, then the best way possible to do it is to propose to spend €200 million Euro of state money on uh, some kind of yachting race. It is a peculiarly Fine Gael response uh, to charges of elitism uh, to look for public backing for the America's Cup. Uh, all right. Yeah, and that issue continues to rumble. Uh, I mean... You know, not to get too sidetracked uh, down that particular breakwater, but, um, uh, you know, I think there are, we've reported in recent days that there are 
significant concerns across all three government parties, actually, uh, about the proposal for the state to back the hosting, Cork hosting the America's Cup in 2024. And there are practical uh, considerations or there are concerns about practical considerations. How much will it cost? What will the return be? What is the robustness of the projected economic returns? What does the state get out of it for um, uh, for for an investment which could reach uh, up to 200 million euros? But there's also, I suppose, the po- purely political considerations about how this looks, how it is justified by uh, by the government spending 200 million euros or 150 million euros, which is uh, what is estimated in one internal report, uh, on, uh, you know, a sport of millionaires, which comparatively few people might uh, might go and see or get something out of. I have to correct you there, Pat, because according to Simon Coveney in the pages of the Irish Times, uh, the America's Cup is a global sporting event uh, of a scale which many would say is third only to the Olympics and the Football World Cup. Now, I'd have to say that the phrase many would say is doing a lot of sort of Trumpian work there. Um, do you think the America's <laughs> Cup is third in world sporting occasions? I think many people would say that it is in the Cork Yacht Club or the Royal Cork Yacht Club. I'm not sure they would say it uh, uh, more broadly in Cork even, never mind uh, uh, in uh, in the rest of the country or the rest of the, uh, or, or the rest of the world. That is not, by the way, to say that, you know, this is something that the state shouldn't do. I mean... Every investment that the state makes in, you know, whether, you know, it be in physical investment or in uh, events to take place in the future, people can raise questions about when it's done, when it, at the time of its commission. But often, you know, they don't, uh, they don't do so when the motorway is built or the, uh, or the Special Olympics is held or uh, whatever it turns out to be. But I can, you know, without expressing a view on the merits or otherwise of the proposal, I can tell you for sure that there is very significant, uh, there is very significant unease in government about it under both the, the you know, the practical economic heading and, uh, you know, the more basic level of how this looks politically and what it leaves the government open to uh, in in terms of political charges. Um, you know, I was talking to one person in government uh, about it the other day who was wondering, you know, how long it would take uh, us in the newspapers to get a photo of uh, kids changing on the side of a pitch uh, without changing rooms while the yachts swept by in the uh, in Cork Harbour in the background. Now I'm not sure if if such a pitch actually exists on the uh, on the side of, of of Cork Harbour, but you get the general point. So this motion of no confidence, Jack, by Sinn Fein and Simon Coveney, is going to dominate the first week or so of proceedings in the Dáil. Have they kind of missed a boat? a bit on it or is there still some juice to be got out of this particular controversy? I don't think they missed the boat. I think that like once you accept that um, a ministerial scalp and Simon Coveney's scalp was, was never really uh, something that would be claimed as a result of this particular political foray um, because no government would ever let it go that far uh, in terms of a vote of no confidence being successful in the Dáil. Um, I think that, you know, from a Sinn Féin point of view, uh, they would have taken a step back late last week and they would have said... This plays to all our strengths. It speaks directly to our base. It solidifies it. 
I don't know to what extent it'll really travel beyond the base, and I'm not sure to what extent uh, it's traveling for the, the the general punter in the street. I don't think it's a massive story for for real people. Um, but they would have said this gives us umpteen more chances to to stand in front of microphones and say say things like cronyism, say things like in, inside appointment and jobs for the boys, and to hammer home further the uh, the, the the sense that. Fine Gael in particular, but also, you know, insider parties have it sewn up and have had it sewn up for years. And um, that the only way to, in the first instance, confront that politically is uh, by addressing it head on. And, you know, this is why the line is that they can't in good conscience let this proceed. Um, and then obviously the, the, the none too subtle subtext is that the only way to, to address it more fundamentally is is by uh, voting Sinn Féin in the next general election. So I, I don't think it has any chance of real success, but I think when you view it kind of on its own narrow terms, it's a perfectly rational um, thing for them to do, uh, even if it does also kind of bring uh, together, bring, bring probably the it to an end to a greater or lesser extent because there is this kind of rally to the flag effect and I think that it'll be substan- the whip will be substantially observed and people will stand up in the doll and say very nice, very strong things about Simon Coveney and everyone will then go their separate ways. One of the things that uh, Pat was really turbocharged Sinn Féin's success at last year's election was the way in which it jumped very quickly and very effectively over the burgeoning, on, the, on the burgeoning controversy over the pensionable age, which had moved from 65 to 66, it was due to move to 67. And it did them a lot of good. And they had some things to say about pensions this week as well. Yeah, this was one of the turning points, I think, in the general election campaign last year. I mean, Sinn Féin hadn't, weren't actually the ones to raise the pension issue. I think that was first done by uh, by the Labour Party, but Sinn Féin seized on it and really used it to put the two big parties, Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, the then big parties, uh, on, uh, on, on the back foot and to build momentum that sustained them really through that uh, general election campaign in 2020. The two big parties been running scared on the, uh, on the issue since then. Um, they've kicked the issue into, uh, uh, in, for, you know, drawing on the Government 101 handbook when you have a difficult uh, issue or difficult decision to take, kick it into uh, a commission. They kicked it into a commission. There was a leak from that commission recently suggesting that it would, uh, it would put the rise in the pension age off for several years. Sinn Féin came back and they're clearly making this a core part of their economic policy offering at the next uh, election and before that that they will uh, they will not raise the pension age, they will reduce the pension age so that, uh, restore it to 65 so that people get the full pension at the age of, uh, of 65 from which they can then presumably look forward to about 20 years of uh, of a pension the difficulty for government this government any government with this is that this will be uh, an expensive pledge Sinn Féin have uh, costed it at 127 million a year but that's a, that will accumulate year after year so um you know it is a microcosm of many of the debates to come in this political term about budgetary issues sure you want to do that sure it sounds nice what are you going to pay for it which taxes are you going to increase to pay for it where are which uh, how much more are you going to borrow to pay for it or what other spending are you going to divert to pay for it and these are you know the foundational distributional distribution uh, distributional questions of politics and there is no getting away from them. And I think what we will see 
in, uh, in, in the coming weeks is a Sinn Féin attempt to sharpen the distinction between that party and the government on the basis of those questions. Also, in, in my humble opinion, Jack, I would say that the questions of social transfers from uh, younger members of the population to older members of the population is becoming more and more pointed as demographic pressures increase and populations age. And a lot of countries are ahead of us in terms of that demographic curve, but it doesn't mean it's not going to affect us as well. And I think it could be a, an, an unpredictable political issue as we as we move forward over the next couple of elections. I think that's right. Um and we've discussed it on this podcast many times before that we see the the issue of generational inequality and access to quality of life, uh, you know, determining issues around quality of life um, that are that have a pronounced step change between people in their twenties, thirties, and even in their early forties, uh, and the generation of their parents, you know, and and I think that. As Pat says, you know, sharpening those divisions, bringing those into into better focus for the electorate is something that that Sinn Féin in particular sees as as fertile political ground. Um, and an issue like this around the pension uh, age is, is is a good one. And and the fact that everyone is is reverting to type on this. So when that that question emerges of how are you going to pay for this, you know, very quickly the Sinn Féin. Uh, the Sinn Féin response is, you know, we're going to target employers' PRSI and gold-plated pensions. Um, so, you know, this is straight out of central casting. And then similarly, straight out of central casting, Leave Riker and Fina Gale come out and say this is anti-business and anti-jobs. And, you know, everything kind of, everyone returns to their, their comfort zone with a depressing predictability. But <laughs> this, these, these are the issues. And, and this is exactly why Pat says, you know, these are the issues and, and this is how, this is these are the modalities, this is how it's going to play out over the next little while. So, you know, it may be tiresome, but get used to it. And stuck in the middle then is Fianna Fáil, who in a way they're thinking, Pat, was the most interesting of the three, of the three large parties, in that they had the, the biggest issues to address. They finally uh, discussed their report and what went wrong at last year's election and also at the by-election earlier in, in the summer. And really quite fundamental questions uh, of what the identity of the party is, its candidate selection into the future, uh, whether it can ever win back the portions of the electorate, like the urban working class, who it appears to have lost for good. Uh, I'm guessing they didn't figure any of those things out. I think uh, I think all that is pretty much a work in progress, as they say, Hugh. The Finfall thinking was primarily about um, about the party looking inwards, both in terms of its identity, um, but more so perhaps uh, in terms of its leadership. And that was the subject that was that took up an awful lot of discussion down there, even though much of it was cloaked in uh, in other terms, it was a reckoning for the leadership of uh, of Michal Martin, an assessment of the strength of the rebels uh, who are have been vociferous in his parliamentary party for more than a year now and are ranged against him. And we learned a couple of things. Um, I think we learned that the decisive part. Uh, the decisive cohort in Fianna Fáil will be the middle ground TDs. There are, you know, there are Martin loyalists, certainly many of them are in cabinet or minister of state jobs. They will never desert him. Uh, there is uh, there is a rump of disaffected TDs who are opposed to his leadership and who want him gone as soon as possible. But then there is a middle ground of TDs and what, um, you know, and I think they emerged as you know perhaps the most 
you know, of, they emerged as the cohort that will be decisive in the future of his leadership. And it is to them that he must look when he judges whether he can stay, as is his avowed intention, after he uh, steps down as Taoiseach and becomes Taunishta at the end of next year. Um, so, you know, I think we learned that the rebels aren't strong or numerous enough to unseat him now, but that the middle ground is likely to uh, to desire a change of leadership before the um, uh, before the next general election. So I think that period between the changeover in government at the end of next year and the next election, we'll see some very interesting times in Fianna Fáil. One thing that did struck me emerging from the, the thing, there were two things, I suppose, that are worth mentioning. The first kind of came from the report, uh, which is this sort of shocking finding about the weakness of the party's identity. And I, I know I've written about this before, Fintan O'Toole has as well, that Fianna Fáil never really had to define in the past what it was for, because it was obvious to everybody what it was for. It was was for governing the country. It was for being in power. But when it ceased to be the natural party of government that was in government for most of the time, when it became in the period after 2011 just another political party, it has struggled to define what exactly it's for, where on the uh, where on the political spectrum or the political landscape, where on the electoral choices of voters that it sits, it sits. And while there was an awful lot of talk about this, I'm not sure that there was any very clear resolution amongst TDs. Many of them in the private sessions spoke about, you know, the Fianna Fáil, Fianna Fáil's great achievements in government in the past, in, you know, offering people opportunities through education, building public housing for people. They spoke about why they got into Fianna Fáil themselves. They spoke about their own, some of them, their own humble origins. But none of them really nailed down what is the party's identity today and what is its place in the political spectrum today. And I think that uh, that will be an ongoing difficulty for uh, for the party in, um, in, in, in the future. I'm not sure anyone has any really ready answers uh, to that that will you know fit in a neat package will fit in an election slogan will fit on uh, on 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 a poster and um, the other thing though that that struck me about it and I'll finish on this is is that uh they the all even the dissidents appear to be agreed with Michal Martin that whatever political salvation there may be for Fianna Fáil in the future, whatever hope of political salvation there is for them in the future, much of it rests on making a success of government. So making a difference to people, people's lives in the Department of Health, in the Department of Housing, in the Department of Public Expenditure, those, you know, very difficult portfolios that Fianna Fáil sought and got. So, you know, if there is to be, um, if there is to be any political resuscitation uh, for Fianna Fáil, the one thing it seemed to me that all the TDs were agreed on is that, uh, is that they have to, you know, they have to produce results in government. And um, that, as, as, you know, you might fairly observe, is very much a work in progress. There's many things within within that, Jack. There's a couple of things that strike me. One is Micheál Martin, of course, has to say that he wants to lead Fianna Fáil into the next election. But whether he does or not might be a different matter from what what he has to say. And the question, that's a question to be resolved. But it also strikes me that on top of what Pat says there, that in a way, 
you know, for those who are agonising over the leadership of the party, that's a way not to address the other problems that he's talking about there. And I do wonder, sometimes I was looking at the political scientist Teresa Reedy on Twitter commenting on the on the Fianna Fáil thinking and she was talking about well what would be wrong with Fianna Fáil identifying itself with the core part of its vote which still seems to be remaining to some extent uh, loyal yes it's rural rather than urban yes to some extent it's older rather than younger yes it's more conservative than it is liberal but that is a segment of the population and in a situation where the old one or two big parties and a number of uh, and a small number of tiny parties is gone forever in a more fragmented political landscape. Maybe it does need to define them itself. If in if maybe not in that way, but in some way, rather than harking back to this great catch-all party, which is never going to return. I had a conversation with a Fianna Fáil backbencher about this kind of very topic uh, in the aftermath of their um, of their thinking last week, and and we were kind of both making the point that like there is probably. There is a gap in the Irish political market for someone, you know, of weight and substance for a large party to kind of tack towards a socially conservative, traditionalist, some might say perhaps unkindly reactionary space and kind of mop up that ground. And, and that that is a kind of, that is a political strategy that's a, that's open to Fianna Fáil. Um, I think the problem is that like it's not it's not a it's not a free it's not a shot to nothing it's not the obvious and only one and just because it is an obvious one it doesn't make it obviously the right choice for them to do it because it would it would provoke deeper questions about you know this person I was talking to was more urban than than rural provoke deeper questions about the party's relevancy in in large population centers that elect great numbers of TDs you know they they have they have a scattering of TDs in Dublin, and how would that affect their chances of re-election? And you know, what is the what is the the relevance of a party that can't get a substantial amount of TDs elected in the capital and in the other large cities? So, um, I don't think there's a there's a clear and obvious reason for doing that, even though it is an option that that that's open to them. And and I think that you know, studying and, and mulling over these questions um, is something that Michal Martin will have to do. And, and it plays to his weaknesses in some ways around the kind of the, the, the charge that he might be a ditherer, you know, um, because these big, profound questions about the future of Fianna Fáil, there's no easy answers to. Uh, like in many ways, I think that the, the Fianna Fáil uh, thinking was was actually the, the, the most interesting of them um, in the ongoing kind of quite public at times psychodrama that has been Fianna Fáil in government over the last little while. It's normally the best crack anyway. It's normally the best crack and, and as a party they are good crack in fairness. But, um, you know, I think that the leadership kind of made a bit of a miscalculation going into it. I think that they thought we could be facing into a bloodbath here. We could be facing into, you know, um, made flesh and blood, all those parliamentary, all those leaky parliamentary party meetings that we've had over the last year or 18 months. And they they sought to to tightly stage manage it as a result of that. And we had these kind of, kind of gimmicky things around phones and bags and so on. And I think that some of the early contributions, certainly talking to, to backbenchers afterwards, some of the early contributions from ministers were kind of predicated on the idea that they were they were in for a real political slugfest here. Michael McGraw was particularly mentioned as as you know being quite bolshy and aggressive in 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 trying to kind of preempt the angles of attack that he thought were coming, and that you know 
the the wider parliamentary party, with some notable exceptions, wasn't really in that kind of a mood. They were in a kind of a more discursive mood. They were pleased to be back in the same room. They wanted to have that kind of broad ranging chat about the future of of the party. So I think that that there was a bit of a misdiagnosis. We shouldn't, however, misdiagnose that ourselves as thinking this was some kind of kumbaya thing. I think that there's 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 a wider um, keeping the powder dry sense among the Fianna Fáil backbenchers and talking to a few of them on Friday and over the weekend, the sense was there, look, let's not do anything too major or build a kind of beachhead around the Coveney thing because it's unlikely to be successful and we'll hold back for the time being, not because we are happy with Michal Martin or we're happy with Fianna Fine Gael, and a lot of them have publicly made clear that they're not happy with Fine Gael, but rather because why waste uh, this chance? Why find ourselves outside the parliamentary party for six months for straying offside here when a more fundamental and more substantial chance to vote in a motion of no confidence against Michal Martin may come down the road in that same period? Uh, the psychodrama continues. One last quick question to you, Pat, if you don't mind. Our colleague Arthur Beasley reports this morning that President Higgins uh, has uh, declined an invitation to attend a church service alongside the Queen in Armagh to mark the centenary of the establishment of, of, of Northern Ireland. Is that likely to cause any ripples? Is there anything unusual about that? Well, I know no more about it than I've read in Arthur's piece this morning. It strikes me as a, a peculiar invitation uh, to turn down. Um, I suppose, you know, the first question we would ask, and we've already asked, uh, is whether, uh, you know, whether this was a government decision. Um, my president needs the uh, permission of the government to lead the state. Um, but that that would seem to me to be unlikely, but we don't know the answer to that question yet. Um um, Michael D. Higgins is in Rome uh, at the moment uh, to uh, to meet the Pope and uh, amongst uh, other people. And um, our intrepid man on the ground uh, there, Mr. H. McGee, will be putting these questions, uh, I think, to the President later. But it is, on first glance, a peculiar decision to turn down something which would be an obvious sort of hands across the border uh, gesture to unionists and to other people uh, in in the north, I guess. So I, I suspect we will hear more of this uh, story um, as the, the day and the week goes on, Hugh. OK, watch this space. We'll leave it there for today. Thanks to, to Pat and to Jack and to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and our engineer, JJ Vernon. We will be back very soon. And do remember that you can mail us at politicspodcast.irishtimes.com. See you very soon. <laughs>